and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're a budding writer, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 160 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including critically acclaimed authors Bonnie Garmus, Jane Harper and Kirsty Capes. CBC offers a wide range of online writing courses designed to help you no matter what your current skill level is. For people at the start of their writing journey, they have a four-week Creative Writing for Beginners course led by author and founder of CBC, Anna Davis. The course will teach you to unleash the potential of your imagination. You'll gain the confidence to put pen to paper and get to work on a story of your own creation. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of Creative Writing for Beginners or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the novelist Marlon James. We spoke to Marlon about growing up in Jamaica and his decision to leave the country, about winning the Booker Prize for A Brief History of Seven Killings, and about his new African fantasy trilogy. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Marlon, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's excellent to have you on the show. We wanted to start with your new novel, Moon Witch, Spider King. We were wondering, could you tell us a little bit about how this fits into the, the larger Dark Star trilogy that you've been working on for the past few years? And I was particularly amused by this, this comment that you gave in a previous interview that you said that after winning the Booker, you, you said you were going to geek the fuck out and write an African Game of Thrones. Do you still feel that that's the kind of direction you're working in or has it evolved since then? Um, I hope it's evolved since then. Um, it's funny. I... Um... That whole line took on a life of its own. Poor George Martin, even he called me saying, I heard you write an African version of my book, which is kind of not true. It is true in a sense that, um, you know, I think the reason why I drew for George's stuff, for George's work, is because he didn't think he had to let go of make-believe in order to write about adult things. And I think we have this idea, and it's a very Western, and it's a very European idea, that when you put away make-believe, you've grown up. You know, when you put fantasy and so on are childish things, even though we still think there's a certain immaturity to the fantasy fan or the sci-fi fan or to the person who plays video games. We still think that. We still think they need to get alive. When really it's the, it's the sort of maturity attributed to the loss of imagination that's made up. So, yeah, in a sense, so the, 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 the comparison fit in the sense that I wanted to write something that I guess some people still consider literature, but not let go of the mythologies and the stories and the legends and the, 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 the freaky stuff and the cool shit that, um, that I'm still fascinated with and I still love, um, yet still write a story that deals with very complicated issues. And I think, um, you know, hopefully that's what, I'm, you know, that's what I'm still doing. You've also described the trilogy as kind of one story from three perspectives, Rashomon-like. Where did that approach come from? It came from a bunch of things, including Rashomon, which I had rewatched. And I mean, it remains one of my favorite movies, but I've always loved the idea 
of one story having very different versions. And I think that's because I grew up with those stories. I grew up in my you know, grandfather telling us a different story every day. And it's only by the third day you realize these are the same characters. But it's a totally different story. And also the notion that um, there's one way to tell a story is also another thing that's Western. And I've been harping that already in this interview quite a bit. But there was a lot of unlearning of storytelling that I had to do in order to tell this kind of story. And one being that the burden of truth on a story is on the story. It's um, with these stories, certainly with the African legends that I've been reading, the you know burden of truth is on you. You have to decide whether it's true or not. Um, you know, when I wrote Black Leopard, Red Wolf, I believed that protagonist. Um, when I wrote Moon with Spider King, I believed her. And um, and I think that's you know that type of storytelling, which which is a very ancient way of telling a story. There's something about it that really struck me. Something about it that struck me as a as a wonderful way of telling a story. Something about it struck me that I could tell four, five, six different versions of this story, and they'd be totally different stories because we're doing it all. We're doing it all the time. We're seeing it now, where people are looking at the same facts and coming to different ideas about what they are. And um, the idea of different people telling the same story and the reader having to decide who's telling the truth was something that was very appealing to me. What was your process in terms of researching Af- African mythology um, when you were beginning to work on these books? Were there particular sources that you had or how did you go about exploring that world? Well, the first thing I would say is that the research led to the story. The story didn't lead to the research. I started researching African myths, legends, histories because I didn't know them. And because I think, not that I think, at some point I started to realize what it must feel like when you can take your mythologies for granted, which I think a lot of people of European descent do. You don't have to sit down thinking about King Arthur all day. Um, But he is, and it's a fundamental aspect of Britishness, the myth of Camelot. I don't know, or at the time, I didn't know what it was like to have that foundational myth. You know, um, Margaret Atwood said human nature hasn't changed in a thousand years, and the way you know is to check the mythologies. I didn't have mythologies to check. So it was going back and looking at these stories that in looking at these stories that a novel emerged. It wasn't the other way around where I had this idea for a cool African novel and look for research. And um, these stories just start to write themselves. You know, um, I don't know who said, so I'm going to take credit for it, that um, you don't create stories, you find them. That was what I did. I found all these stories. I didn't, didn't hijack them wholesale. Of course, I did my own things with them and and reading the great thing about reading mythologies is that you start to create your own myths as well um certainly your own make-believe and and that's how it happened that the 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 stuff as reading made me more and more convinced there is a novel here as opposed to i had this novel idea so let's find some stuff of course once i realized i had a novel then i had to do even more research and um and i you know I'm primarily known as a historical novelist, which I've always not really, a, you know, I, I don't take offense to it, but I'm kind of taken aback that a period that I actually lived through is considered historical. I'm not that old. 
Um, but the thing about being a, a historical novelist is that research is a major part of your job. Because while it's history for me, it's not history for the characters. And you have to move through the past or move through a sci-fi world or move through something completely make-believe as if the characters think it's real. Which means it's not just a matter of researching stuff that happened. After research how people lived in it. After research the boring stuff. When I was reading a novel on slavery, I was reading tax records. Um, you know, the, 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 the boring, geeky stuff that, that um, because I know all of this, the characters can move through the world as if they've always, they've always lived there, which is a very long way of explaining your research question. We love the boring, geeky stuff on this podcast. I was actually about to follow it up with another one. How do you organize your research? We've had all sorts of methods on this podcast, including binders and color-coded things. Do you have a system to keep it all to hand? Man, if I had a system, I'd write faster. <laughs> I have just notebooks upon notebooks upon notebooks, and then I have a research assistant, and he has notebooks upon notebooks. I don't think I have a system. Or this is what happens. I realize I need a system midway through writing something, and then call my assistant terrified and paranoid. Can you, know, can you put all of this in one thing? And and of course, you know, he he does it. My assistant Jeff, he's fantastic with that. But I I don't start of grab research on women's headgear of the Middle Ages. But I need it. I go, hey, can we see how much stuff have we done on headgear and put it together? Um because I I think I'm I'm very scared of missing something if I get very specific with how I do research. Um, so I read everything, including, as I said before, the boring stuff. And um, I've read so much and annotated so much and make notes of so much that, no, I mean, I can literally like just go through my research as if somebody would go through Wikipedia or Google um, and and use it in that way. I just, if for me, it's building, constantly building this reservoir of imagination that I can always tap into as opposed to anything specific we want to come back to the the new novel later in the conversation but could we roll back now to the the start of your career and and to your childhood really and and is it true that you had quite a difficult time growing up in jamaica particularly spent a lot of time on your own and quite engaged with comics and that that school was quite complex for you as well i mean yeah i'm just not sure it was particularly that remarkable i mean as a nerd (laughs) you know as a 80s nerd who listened to prince and read comics and um and you know at a, a part of a school that had the same old hierarchy of jocks, geeks, nerds, freaks, and so on. And yeah, I I end up spending a lot of time on my own, um, like a lot of writers, and a lot of time reading, I mean, tons of books, but mostly comics, and just disappearing into that fantasy world. And by fantasy, I don't mean dragon, dragons and, and witches, but just the world of make-believe, the world of superheroes. Because um, the, the thing I realized, and I wouldn't have said it back then because I wouldn't have the words to say it, but I, you know, I read for... The main reason I read was because I wanted to have more than one life. Yeah, certainly one other than the one that I was, I was presently living. And, um, and that's where that came from. Do you think reading comic books voraciously in your formative years shaped your understanding of narrative in any particular way? Yeah, I think um, 
Certainly, the comic books I was the comic books I was reading, which is mostly X Men, and and Teen Titans and so on, um, is that they did help sharpen my idea of human nature. Um, you know, people doing things they don't want to do, or people doing things that they have to do, or what exactly is evil mean? Um, and you know, for something that was kid stuff, they were incredibly complicated. Um, stories, but they also, I think, particularly a comic like X Men, is they never shy away from the freakish nature of the characters. That it's it's it, these weren't the Avengers who were celebrated and beautified and pretty, and everybody loves them, and they were the popular kids. These were the you know again like me, they were the nerds, they were the geeks, they were the not pretty kids, they were the outcasts, and to remember the humanity of those characters even as people around them continually dehumanize them i thought was a pretty powerful lesson which i wouldn't have said back then because i wouldn't have noticed that i was learning it um but i see that now do you have memories of 1976 and the the bob marley assassination attempt that later found its way into a brief history of seven killings um in a weird yes and no i mean i was six but yeah, in fact, I—I I mean, I was—I was six. I was barely six for a month, but I grew up in a house with you know with a detective, and with a lawyer, and 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 they never shied away from talking in front of their children. And what I I remember the thing that haunts me about it was um how they talked about it. My mom being a cop, she talks. She can talk about crime in a very detached way, in a way in which most people don't. This was the first time she wasn't detached. Um, the first time, you know, I could pick up something else there, even if I didn't know what the words were. I could pick up some sort of fear and nervousness because Bob Marley was untouchable. Yeah, that, that was the unwritten rule in Jamaica. Nobody touches a tough gun. And the, I, the, the, I think the fear that they were transmitting was that if we're in a stage now where people go after Bob Marley, they'll go after anybody. And that I understood, even at six years old, I understood things was different. To jump ahead again slightly, what made you want to pursue literature at university? Well, actually, one, because I couldn't get into mass communications. I failed the entrance exam. So <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hit the college with sort of some drive, I'm going to do literature. I, I gave it because I wasn't good enough to get into the into the, the communications class. Um, and I had to pick something. And, you know, I remembered how much I love books. So something to spend some time with books, particularly with the degree I did where I minored in politics. So that rounded it out. But it wasn't, it was, I mean, I'd love to say I was like diehard in my pursuit of literature. When I came to college, I, I was frustrated that I wasn't pursuing art. Because that was my first love, and that's what I wanted to do. But I think I drank the Kool-Aid that an artist in Jamaica is going to be starving and suffering, and I didn't want to be poor. So I went to college to do this communications degree, because that was a sexy degree, but I couldn't, I, I, I wasn't smart enough to, to, to pass the test. So I ended up doing English. So it really was by default, honestly. It wasn't by, it certainly wasn't by design. 
And through this period when you were at school and university and then, and then working in advertising, how big a factor was homophobia that you had to, to contend with? And how, how big a factor was that in your decision to, to eventually leave Jamaica? I think it's, it's big in the sense that it, it colors everything I did. It colored, rather, everything I did, how I spoke, how I behaved. At one point, I was even measuring how many words I'd say in a sentence, because if I say too much, I'd start to sound gay. Um, so it really affected me on a macro level. I don't think it, you know, it, it, it's, it didn't affect me on a major level. It's not like I was a victim of a homophobic attack. Usually people think when they hear I come from Jamaica, they think some anti-gay Gestapo was hunting me down or something. And it was way more subtle than that. You know, it was way more, and, 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 and because it was more subtle, it was more endemic and it was more, it was more for me damaging. I think it would have been in some ways easier to just deal with a mob. Kind of simple and that's actual people. You can, you can externalize it. Instead, I internalized it. And then I think in some ways, in some ways that was worse. Um, but yeah, because I was I was responding to a threat that never really manifested itself. I can't say it did. I, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I ever, ever encountered homophobia in Jamaica. I really haven't. I mean, I could say high school, but I mean, that almost doesn't count. That just makes me, you know, a plot of an 80s sitcom, really. Um, but it, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if there, I don't need, I didn't need, I didn't need a mob outside to fear what would happen to me. I didn't need the threat of violence to fear violence. And I certainly didn't need people to tell me I was different to fear being different. And I think, and, and um, that is certainly one of the reasons why I left Jamaica. Certainly not the main reason, honestly. Because, I mean, when you are, you know, people rarely talk about the, the, gay, the gay person who stays in Jamaica. Everybody talks about the ones who leave, and I was one who left. But, you know, nobody talks about the one who stays. And a person who stays find a way to come to terms with the country you're living and live some sort of life that a lot of them find even happy, it wasn't enough for me. Um, it's not that I, you know, I don't think I wanted to be closeted, for example. I don't know if I wanted to be in a situation where I had to be always monitoring my actions. I don't want to be some, you know, being caught huddling somebody's shoulder too long or so on. And I'm not, as I said, I've never suffered the consequences of any actions, but again, you don't need to suffer the consequences of something to fear it. And that's one of the things that pushed me out. But honestly, I was equally pushed by the idea that I don't think I could be an author and live in Jamaica. Um, I think hopefully my generation is the last of the kind that felt they had to migrate to make a career. That was just because, you know, I mean, yes, I, I wanted to live my life as I wanted, but I also wanted to write books. And and that to me, that's how I came to define myself. And... Um, not finding community, at least not the community that I wanted, not finding resources, not even finding somewhere I could do a terminal degree, not even find, not even being able to do an MFA, um, not finding the kind of life that would support my art or the type of career that would support my art. I mean, all these things played, um, played into it. What were the steps then that led you to the publication of your first novel, John Crow's Devil, in 2005? Well, I mean, I so I wrote that novel mainly to prove that I could write a novel. I um 
It's funny enough, this story involves Sinead O'Connor. Shit, I don't know her. But people used to make all this, all this, all her story, not her stories, all the press about her would talk about how she's making all these these songs from trauma. You know, her diary, her life is so personal, her heartache. And I remember thinking, man, if she needed ever have a happy year, what's going to happen to her music? Just what people say about Adele. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm thinking, surely I'm not going to be miserable my entire life. What's going to happen when I'm finally happy? Oh, I'm going to suck? Because I would write, I used to write these sort of semi-autobiographical things or these thinly disguised fictions, which I really hope never gets published. At least wait till I die. Um, and so I wrote this novel because I wanted to write something that had absolutely nothing to do with me whatsoever. Of course, 20 years later, I realized it totally is about me, but I wanted to write something removed from me. It's why it's set in the 60s, in the 50s. It's set around people I've never met and would never be friends with. Um, I was really, really deep in church at the time, which is a whole other story. And I wrote about a really, really dysfunctional church as basically a cult. And um, mostly, primarily as an exercise to prove to myself I could write something that wasn't about me. Um, the idea that I could publish it didn't come till a year later. And, you know, I think a lot of people know the story by now. You know, deciding you want to publish something and publishing it is a whole different thing. And, of course, when I wrote it, nobody wanted it. When I decided I wanted to publish it, absolutely nobody wanted it. To publish it um you know i went through dozens and dozens and dozens of publishers and editors and agents and nobody really wanted it i was i was reading about this and, and i saw that you'd experienced over 70 rejections with john crow's devil and then the um the book of night women was also turned down almost 20 times before riverhead picked it up i mean in that in that situation how how did you keep going what was your motivation man i wish i could say i did keep going I actually didn't i actually did not i didn't keep going I remember finding off rejection number 78 for John Crow's Devil because I didn't know it was number 78. This is a problem, you know. I, I would be, um, I would print, I would like send out six letters and wait like six weeks, two, six weeks, a month, what you know, eight weeks, whatever. And if I didn't hear from anybody or if they said no, I just printed out another six. And I kept doing that for around a year and a half, I think not really paying attention because that other things doing. I'm like, okay, didn't hear from them. It's the same damn letter. Just put different address and send out. And when I got this, um, this card from a publisher who should remain nameless, meaning Soho Press, and it was just, the card just said, not for us, which I thought was really rude. Um, but it was the first time I stopped and I went, hold on, how many of these have I gotten? And that's when I finally counted it and it came up to 78. And I have no memory of what else I did that day because I was just so shocked and stunned. I have no memory of what else happened that day. Um, I don't know if if I had known all along I'd have persevered to 78. I don't think I would. But I'm not sure being, being hit in the face with that revelation felt any better. Either way, I gave up. I gave up. I said, nah, if, if, you know, these people aren't idiots. These people are some of the smartest people in their field. If 78 people think this is not good enough, it can't possibly be good. So I gave up. I threw the book away. Actually, I burned it. I did a whole ritual burning. It was great. It was very cathartic. 
and I erased it from my computer. And I remember going to um, every because I didn't have a printer, so I'd always print these print out files at my friends' houses, and I'd go to their houses and go on their computers and find the file and delete it there. And then it was Kaylee Jones, right? Who who sort of pushed on? Yeah, Kaylee Jones um, came for a workshop, and Kaylee Jones was a re- was a last minute replacement. This is why I'm terrible on careers day. Because people go, what do you do? I go, I don't know. Get lucky enough, dumb shit happened to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm horrible with career, with career and careers day. Um, anyway, yeah. So she, you know, we, I was in a workshop, which I only went to because I felt duty bound to do it. And, um, you know, she saw that I could write and she made it clear she was not going to leave the country until I found a copy of the manuscript and give to her. And I'm, someone managed to find it in an outbox of an old computer and gave it to her and she edited it for free that's how she loved it and she found a publisher which was her publisher at the time an independent publisher akashic books and they published it um and i would say that was that and that was the start of a great future except the the second book was rejected by nearly every publisher too um it's yeah it wasn't just like smooth sailing after after i just realized you know they're the the publishing industry they've come a long way but they certainly when i started writing had a very narrow idea of what kind of books get published and they had an even narrower idea of what kind of books get published by black people or people of color or anybody that wasn't white and usually you know male or female but um yeah, they just they they had a very narrow idea of the stories that could be told, and I just didn't fit into their idea. So when you're getting those um, rejections, if it's not too grim to linger on this for a little longer, okay, it's not grim at all. Did you did you get any meaningful feedback, or was it more along the lines of this is just not for us? No, I did, and and, and you know, and for people like you know, upcoming you know writers or beginning writers or anybody who wants to write, who you know. I would say one of the best one of the best gifts you could ever get is the rejector who tells you why. More often than not, they don't. And a lot of times when the person takes the time to tell you why they're turning you down, that doesn't mean necessarily want to see it again. And you don't need that either. It, it, but it's it's the feedback they give can be really instrumental. And I remember that. So I remember um the 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 agent who rejected Book of Night Woman because he didn't like any other, he didn't feel for the, any other characters. And, and I, you know, and I remember because he gave really, really good instructions, but he was such an asshole about it. And I had to remember thinking, all right, get, just put your feelings to the side and ignore the, ignore the, the manner in which he's right speaking to you and just take the instruction. And I did. So I didn't take his advice and I rewrote the novel almost to a T to suggestions that he made. And then I sent it to a different agent because fuck him. And, <laughs> you know, she managed to, you know, get it published through Riverhead, who remains my publisher. So, yeah, it's there's something to be said for the person who turns it down, who tells you why, even if they're not very nice about it. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. 
I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the novelist Marlon James. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're going to hear from the novelist Ella Shafak. And I wanted to share this this week because we were actually recently nominated for an award for this episode that we did with Elif. It was for the International Women's Podcast Awards and it was for the category of Moment of Insight from a Role Model. So thanks so much to the International Women's Podcast Awards for the nomination. And here's Elif Shafak on the most important trait a writer should have. Two things, not one thing, but I believe a good novelist, a good writer should be a good reader, uh, a curious reader, an avid reader, maybe a greedy reader, you know, always curious. And I think we should read everything and anything, whatever speaks to us. So I've never believed in that distinction between highbrow literature and lowbrow literature. I, I don't even know what that means, who makes those distinctions. We can read in everything, like from political philosophy to cookbooks to graphic novels, you know, comic books. If it speaks to you, it's the right book. But just to make the act of reading constant, continuous in our lives, I think it's very important. And the second thing I would say, to me it's an important trait, I try to listen to people a lot. And I think I listen to two things, not only what people are telling me or telling each other, but also with what kind of energy, what kind of choice of words, you know, what kind of emotions go into those words or sometimes silences. So I think we need to be good listeners and good readers if we want to be good writers. That was Elif Shafak. And if you were interested in what Elif had to say, you can listen to our full episode with her via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Marlon James. Could you tell us where teaching has fitted into your your kind of journey here? Is it right that you arrived at McAllister in two thousand and seven, and you've you sort of been there been there since? And then what what have you kind of drawn out of that experience? And then as you know, your your profile now is is hugely higher than it was when you arrived. How does it fit in your life now compared to when you began? Well, I mean, I went back to to school in order to teach because I wanted a career that support is not the word I'm looking for, but let's use it for now. Um, that supported my writing and vice versa. Um, and I think that teaching, you know, when you're and teaching writing or teaching anything, you know, when you're, when you are helping people to do the thing you do, it, it actually helps you as well. And I teach undergrads, so I get them pretty young. Um, a lot of times they don't even know if they want to be a writer as much as what they want to write. And there's, you know, there's something to be said for being around people who are creative just for creativity's sake, or people who still have this sense of potential. Because I think by the time a, a writer gets to an MFA program, they're pretty set in what they want to do. And that can be great, but it can also be kind of sorrow sorrow you mean sorrow I was trying to say sad and narrow I end up saying sorrow that should be a word <laughs> it can be it, it's 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 there sometimes you get the sense that they're already too far gone and with undergrads the sense of possibility is always there and I try to still have that in what I write um even though 
I take lots of notes. We're talking about all the notes and research that I do. I'm actually pretty open-ended when I write a book. I have no idea where they're going to go. You know, I I mean, I might have a slight clue, but I really don't. And, I'm, and I, I have yet to write a novel that ends the way I thought it would have when I started out. Um, and I think that sense of open-endedness comes from being around, being around these kids. And they, they teach me all sorts of things and they, because they're dealing with some, you know, they're, they're even in their academic life, they're dealing with wider subjects than writing. They're dealing with wider subjects than writing fiction. Whereas when you get to a senior level, uh, MFA level, that's all they're doing. So yeah, they, they, um, because of them, I still read widely and I write widely and I read everything and I never developed that literary snobbery which I thought was going to happen to me at some point because they're always encouraging me to read stuff that um, other people think they're too big to read. Um, chances are if there's an exciting new poet I'm going to learn from them first. I'm not going to learn from the institution of literature who's the most exciting poet out there. I'm going to learn from my students. Um, certainly interesting hip-hop I'm going to learn from them. Um, you know, I still think that the most exciting art starts from the ground and comes up as opposed to starts from the establishment and filters down. And they are always, they have their ears to the street. So being around them, I, you know, I learn things and I pick up things and it, it all comes out in the, in the literature that I write in one way or another. You said that it, uh, in 2007 it sort of supported your writing, although you, you know, queried the use of that word. Was that also in a financial sense that gave you a kind of bedrock of stability to pursue your pursue your writing projects? Yeah, it did, and uh, and I mean, I've had I've had jobs that didn't do that, um, because it's it's being creative or teaching creativity or just teaching a love of the books books you know as somebody who writes them. Um, in some ways, it's just it's its own reward, but. Yeah, being able to have summers off help as well. Being being um always so you know talking about the stuff that is is my life is you know great as well. I didn't have to switch off one part of me to turn on another part of me to do these things, which is which was honestly brand new for me. When um, a brief history of seven killings won the Booker in in twenty fifteen, how did that? change things for you in your in your professional life and how things fitted together and, and as as Rachel alluded to in the last question we always ask about money on the podcast and how it fits with with people's writing lives so on that side be as candid or as guarded as as you're comfortable being but how when you when you got that prize did your did your life change oh of course it totally changed um you know I, yeah I, I you know I'm never shy about talking about money. I have no problem talking about money I remember being on stage and somebody shouted how does it feel to get tainted money from the Booker Prize. And I'm like, you're damn right it tainted. It taint enough. It's like, <laughs> I want more. It's, like, um, it's, 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 because it's, it's so rare in this field that you get to a point where it can sustain you. It's so rare. And I'm, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing when it doesn't happen. I mean, whatever. Um, so I'm never going to begrudge somebody that. And as for the book, I mean, it's not like the booker is that much money, but it it was transformative. It was transformative in lots of ways. The thing is, 
a, a novel that wins the Booker becomes a news. It becomes a news story instantly in forty eight countries or whatever the countries are in the Commonwealth. Um, I have very mixed feelings about the very idea of the Commonwealth, but I can't deny that something like a Booker Prize makes you a person of interest in dozens of countries. And, uh, you know, I get to visit several countries. I get to see several people. Um, when different people from different nations tell you about how the book will transform them, it is humbling and it's surreal. And you're like, how the hell did this happen? I toured all over the world and I met all sorts of people and, and not all of them in the Commonwealth, by the way. Um, it, was, it was a major thing for me to go to Brazil. Because in a lot of ways, Brazil's urban cultures are very much like Jamaica's. And to see how different cultures and different people, particularly different people of color in the diaspora, respond to this story would not happen without the Booker, honestly. So yeah, it, it, it opened a lot of doors which hopefully haven't closed and they wouldn't have been open, they wouldn't have been open otherwise. Could you tell us a little bit about the... Um sort of history of the film and TV rights of um, A Brief History of Seven Killings. What's what's kind of gone on there? Well, you know, it's a complex it's a complex story. It's a complicated story. And I think a lot of people have their idea of how to tell it. I mean, it went through HBO at a time. Funny enough, I'm actually doing a show with HBO now. Um, but at the time, I think there was a combination of, you know, people not quite sure where to go with the story and a lot of people involved, you know, left and so on. There was a high turnover at the time. So sometimes it's just Hollywood business that gets in the way. Other times it can be a very big misunderstanding of what the novel is, which is what happened the second to the second um, itineration of this novel, um, where, you know, I think Different people respond to the challenges of the novel in different ways. And one of the challenges of the novel, for example, is language. What are you going to do with all that patois? And people have different ideas, most of them terrible. Sometimes it's, let's put subtitles. Sometimes it's, let's come up with a hybrid that nobody talks, how nobody sounds, and you end up sounding like that, like that show Luke Cage. Or, or, you know, anytime Whoopi Goldberg plays somebody from the Caribbean. Um... So it went through, you know, it, it went through a series of, of, of different cable houses. Right now it's with, it's, you know, we're, we're hopefully about to do something with Netflix. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing definite yet, so I can't say anything. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's ironic for me because almost all my novels have gone through the Hollywood ringer. And it's, and the one that's actually been filmed though is not a novel, it's an original story. Could we talk uh, a little bit now more about your, your process of constructing plot? You touched on this earlier. And I, I was kind of fascinated by this idea that your, your novels don't go in the ways you, um, you premeditate them. And, and this is a really long running kind of point of discussion on the show. So with all the novelists that we've had on, we asked them in, in the kind of language that we've fallen upon, whether they're a plotter or a plunger. So whether they're someone who, who has a, a narrative up in whether it's on uh, cards on their wall or, or, or whatever, or whether they're just following their subconscious. And we've heard kind of completely different 
variations on that. But I was fascinated to read that, that with A Brief History of Seven Killings, that, that was originally going to be a crime novel set in New York and Chicago in 1985. And I also came across this, this line that you gave in an interview saying that Carlos Fuentes says there's no greater tragedy than a book ending exactly the way you planned it. And I think if that happens, maybe the writer's having too firm a grip on the story. Could you unpack a bit for us your, your kind of process and then maybe your, your thoughts about plotting versus plunging? The thing is, I actually do both. I plot and I plunge. I have I have books after books and notes after notes of plot. I do have the post-it sticked on all over my walls, and um and I do you know try to map out a story right to its very end, very destination. Then I start writing and just dump all that shit. Not you know because it's at some point for me in a novel, characters become people, and people do things you don't expect them to do. And they're volatile, especially if they're my characters. Um, you know, they 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 don't really listen. They make bad decisions, and they surprise and they disappoint. And I think those are all things you can't necessarily plot. You can't plot a surprise. And it's not a surprise. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's I was gonna say you can't plot disappointment either, because in its way, it's a surprise. So it's 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 a combination of both. Where I'll have a stack of notes. I think. I think I've been trying to figure out why I plot so much then never use what I plot. And I think one is to clear my head. I think that the more stuff I have done on a page instead of in my head is the less stuff that I have wrestling with uh, or trying to make, you know, trying to make sense of. But every now and then I will check those notes to stay on track because it's easy to ramble on and on and on. And I, especially with the, the type of novels that I'm writing and the type of risks I'm taking, um, one of them being having dozens of characters, that there still has to be some sort of architecture. There has to be some sort of, of engine pushing stuff. Or if, for me, at least, it can become just one bloody mess. Because I have so many people that I'm, you know, that I'm writing about, so I do have to bring structure, um, in it. But when I'm with characters, I have to still give them the leeway to go where I didn't expect them to go. And and now to me, that's a highlight of writing. It's, you know, it's it's when um, at the end of a writing day, I can say, "Damn, I never saw that coming." Um, violence as well as is, is part of your work and how do you go about writing those scenes do you find it challenging is there a particular sort of theory of writing violence that you that you have i'm not really i don't know if i have a th- i think if i have a theory of violence is that violence should be violent um you know that violence is an aberration and it's funny i was i i did a uh um uh show a Canadian, I think it was a Canadian broadcaster, and he was asking me about, telling me how disturbed he was by the violence in the book. And I don't know if I was just annoyed by being constantly asked a question. And I was like, but you're not disturbed by violence at all. You quite love violence. You just like it your way. Um, it's, it's the person who watches John Wick or watches any type of show where the hero has killed 50, 60, 70, 80 people but goes off in the sunset with his girlfriend and you don't think once about the dozens of families that guy that, that guy just destroyed, then you also have a pretty perverse view of violence yourself. Yeah, that the that you can easily 
set aside so much violence, carnage, and suffering because we need to we need to hear the latest song from whoever is in the soundtrack, and we need our sexy hero and heroine to go off. Yeah, that's pretty. That's a pretty perverse view of violence too, and it's also it's also quite disturbing. So it's always interesting to me when people who are really into a very profoundly disturbing view of violence call my violence disturbing. And I know we're, if we're going to do that, then it's all disturbing. I I think the difference with me and, say, a movie movies like that is that um, I don't just write about violence, I write about suffering. And I don't just write about violence, I write about consequences. And also, violence is ugly. Um, one thing is that, that uh, Hollywood has, has conditioned, conditioned us to love, and I love it as much as everybody else, is operatic violence or choreographed violence. As if there's nothing choreographed about violence. Well, the tropes in Hollywood, and I, I know this because I'm writing a TV show where a lot of crime happens, and I always ask, so what violence do you want me to write here? Do you want me to write real violence or Hollywood violence? I can give it whichever one you want. Because in Hollywood violence, you get shot in the leg and you go, oh, it's a flesh wound. Let's continue the fight. In the real world, you get shot in the leg, you're dying. Because nine times out of ten, you've hit the femoral artery. You're not going to survive the next 15 minutes. From that, you get shot in the belly, your belly will be left crack open for a year. You, know, you, don't, you, don't, you don't walk off into the sunset with that. And I am very much interested if I'm going to write those things to put that in there. Um, so funny enough, I don't think I write a lot of violence. But I do think that the, the stuff I write reverberates and it resonates and it leaves an echo. And it's disturbing because violence is disturbing. There's nothing normal about it. It's actually, this, this is not how people behave. You know, this is not what normal people don't wake up and think, who well, I'm going to kill today and do it. It's it's not normal behavior and it shouldn't feel easy to digest when you read it. Could you tell us about um, sort of post-Brief History and post-Booker Prize, how you you kind of moved to to beginning the, the trilogy? And I was interested to read that you, you told your agent you had this idea for a kind of quiet, reserved literary novel about Jamaicans in New York and then took this this completely different tack. I mean, was it, you know, following up a, a huge professional success like that, what was that experience like emotionally and in terms of deciding which way to go? It was a, it was a decision, or rather, it was a choice between the book I thought I should write and the book I wanted to write. Because I think after you win a prize, certainly a prize at the Booker Prize, everybody expects a sort of the mature return or, or or the quiet novel or more of the same or certainly not far removed from the one you just you just wrote and I could do all those things and not and not cynically because I you know because I think those are all I've seen you know those can be wonderful novels those are those can be fantastic novels um, but I knew I was writing it because I was writing a novel I thought I should write and you know William Burroughs talks about how there's there's no such thing as should in literature. You know, you, you never do something because you felt you should in literature. You're already gone if you feel that way. And the fantasy stuff was just in the wild dream in the back of my head that I know I really, really wanted to do, but wasn't sure if I could. And um, you know, after a while, including talking to my agent. I was like, yeah. And he said, well, you know, that New York one sounds like a wise novel that you would probably do well. 
And I'm like, yeah, but you know, I don't wake up in the morning thinking about it. And I think you should lose sleep over a novel. I think you should lose sleep over your ideas. I think, I think you're, as a writer, your subject matter should unnerve you a little bit. You should, be, you should have really ambivalent feelings about what you're writing. I'm a big believer of that. You should have complicated feelings about what you're writing. And wherever, and I, and I found myself drawn more to that messy thing that I still deep down always wanted to do. It's, 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 it's the, it was almost id versus, versus superego. And id wanted to write about magic. And superego is like, well, do, be a practical novelist. And I mean, you know, I, I, nothing about my life as a writer is, sounds practical. Nothing about it to me makes any sense, honestly. So the idea that I'm going to make a sensible decision to write with the book I'm writing just seemed kind of stupid. We're coming towards the end of our time. So I wanted to ask about um, Get Millie Black, the TV series that you're writing with HBO and um, Channel 4 in the UK. Where did that idea come from and how do you decide that a television series was the best way to tell that story rather than, rather than a novel? So this again proves why I'm, why I'm so terrible at careers there. Because I wrote that, uh, that idea to get rid of the producer, not to do a show. Because this is my friend Leopoldo, who was a producer at the time, kept hounding me for an idea. I was like, I won't leave until you give me a treatment. And I was like, fine, I'll write a treatment. And I go, what is the type of story that would absolutely never get done? Let's see. Let's make her black. Let's make her Jamaican. Let's make everybody Jamaican. Let's have them speaking Patois. Let it be a very dark story and blah, blah, blah. And I wrote this thing. I'm like, I made it as unfilmable as I possibly could thinking I'd never hear from anybody again. And they're like, well, we love it. And I was like, oh, shit. So now I had to make this show. Um, but, you know, in, in actually going beyond what I had, what I had written to basically get rid of people and to start think about these characters, I kind of fell in love with them. And, um, and I fell in love with the story, largely because Millie is a person in flux and I know a lot about what that's all about. You know, she is... Uh, um, you know, she's a British, British Jamaican, Jamaican immigrant who becomes a cop in the UK at a time when, when tensions between immigrant and black and Caribbean communities and the UK police couldn't have been worse. And she becomes a cop anyway, which is its own issue. And then she ends up in a controversy where she becomes a scapegoat of course, of no surprise to the immigrant community. And she ends up, you know, being kind of banished back to Jamaica where she's made a life for herself. But then a case comes along that pulls her right back into the UK. And her dealing with, you know, she doesn't get to the UK till near the end of the season. But it's her dealing with, you know, being Jamaican but never quite belonging in Jamaica and being British but never quite belonging in Britain and dealing with a case that just sparks a lot of memories for her. She's looking for a missing person and the missing person takes her through a human trafficking ring. And then she ends up back in UK, which of course is a huge haven for human trafficking. And, um, and she has to face things that she has never had to face before. And a lot of things that she thought was already behind her. 
Um, as Rachel said, we're, we're coming up against our time limit. So a, a final question from me. I was wondering with the, the recent um, trilogy you've been working on that's set in Africa and, and with the, the previous books with Jamaican settings, have you been able to develop a, a sizable African readership and a readership in Jamaica as well? Because um, I think we had, we had Aminata Fauna on um, who set novels set in Sierra Leone and said, you know, she had faced challenges with lack of bookselling infrastructure with relatively low levels of literacy and, and things like that. And I was reading some comment online saying that, you know, particularly the kind of bookselling infrastructure in Jamaica is they've, there's been moves away from books towards other, towards electronics and stuff like that. How have, how has that whole piece worked for you? It's a, cha- it's a continuing challenge. I'm in Jamaica and I was talking to somebody yesterday who said that. It's like, I wish your books are available here. I think they are. I think they might just sell out faster than they could provide. Which that's my hopeful thought, anyway. Um, but it is a problem. I know in in Nigeria there is a Nigerian publisher, and in in Ghana there are there are bookstores. But there are other things. One, there is no offer to translate the book into Yoruba. Yeah, it's one thing to have the book available. It's another thing. I mean, the books in Croatian. <laughs> yeah, it's in Spanish and Catalan. But it's not in Yoruba, it's not in Swahili, it's not in Fan, it's not in Fulani. Um, and because the infrastructures aren't there, which is my way of saying the money isn't there, um, to do that. So we, we still have a long way to go. Um, in terms of just the book itself, it's as, it's as wide as it can be in those countries, because I've been to the festivals there, whether in person or online. And it's very important to me. And it's great, it's always great hearing from African fans and African readers rather more than anybody else because yeah I'm still kind of I won't lie I kind of want the approval I kind of want to know somebody from the motherland things yeah I like this even if it doesn't necessarily sound African um I mean I write for myself I like to at least that's what I tell myself but the this was an attempt to reconnect with the mythological history I think I thought I didn't have so it has a special resonance to do, say, an African book festival or to talk to Nigerians about the book or so on. So it's it's something that um, I'm not the first person, the first writer in the diaspora to face. But I do think it's one it should be one of the one of those sort of, you know, 2020s literature problems that we should fix, which is how do we get the people we're writing about to read our books? And how do we get the people who, you know, who are a huge part of where we come from and a huge part of our culture and a huge part of our legacy to pay to be a part in this conversation about books that could not have happened without them? And I think those are important things to consider. And those are things that we should work on and things we should, um, you know, be more busy about in, in, in the coming years. Well, that's a poignant note to end on. Thank you very much for speaking to us, Marlon, and good luck with the rest of the trilogy, the TV series, the teaching and everything else. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Marlon James. He's on Twitter at MarlonJames5. He has a website, which is MarlonJamesWriter.com. His latest book, Moonwitch Spider King, is published by Hamish Hamilton. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. 
If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout-out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's Asken. Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Marlon? I was trying to think uh, how many Booker Prize winners we've had on Always Take Notes now. And I think it's three. We've had him and Howard Jacobson and Anne Enright. So um, delighted to be building up this kind of canon. I, and as with those others, it's just fascinating to ask what the experience of winning the biggest prize in fiction in the UK at least is like and then how particularly how do you follow it up I thought that was a very interesting question with him and his decision to go off in a radically different direction Rachel what about you what did you think I enjoyed his quip as well about the book prize money not being enough um <laughs> I thought he was a very witty guest it was interesting too to hear about how he'd responded to failure at the beginning of his career uh, the 70 odd rejections that he got from publishers so showed some real tenacity um, and resilience to, to persist with writing after all that. Anyway, Simon, what have you been up to? I have some uh, pleasing news in that my new book has been uh, bought by uh, a publisher in the United States by Grove Atlantic. So uh, I'll be working on that for HarperCollins here and for uh, them over there. So good that that has um, come together, but it has meant that I've now been sort of spinning my wheels, doing lots of planning and, and working things out. Um, Rachel, what about you? It's very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, what have I been up to? Well, uh, the passing of the Queen, plus the retirement of Roger Federer, has kept me busy, actually, uh, <laughs> recently. Um, so I've been doing um, various pieces about uh, them and popular culture. So I'm looking forward to a holiday soon where I will do lots of reading and put my feet up a bit. Sounds very good. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser and our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there and always take notes. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.